And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. We're taking the week off, but I want to share another of my favorite episodes, this one from 2017 with Madeleine Albright, the trailblazing American scholar, diplomat, and secretary of state. She passed away in 2022, but her inspiring personal story and her extraordinary insights into this complicated world are timeless. Here's our conversation. Secretary Albright, welcome. It's always always good to see you. Wonderful to see you. Thank but, you. But particularly in these very interesting times. And I, I really think uh, I always start these conversations by asking people about their journeys, but yours seems particularly germane given some of the issues that have arisen in the last few months, because no one really understands the path of refugees and the experience of being driven from one's country uh, more readily than you. That was your childhood. Well, it definitely was. I uh, can identify myself in many ways. One is, uh, and the most important one, a grateful American, because what happened was my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. I was born in 1937, two years before um, the war really started. And um, he had been somebody that had been uh, in the government. He And when the Nazis marched into Czechoslovakia in March 39, um, my parents decided they had to leave because they couldn't be around for the Nazis. And so we went to England, and I spent the war in England, uh, and we were refugees there. My father was with the government in exile, and he actually broadcast over BBC into Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. But I lived through the Blitz, and um, we went to air raid shelters, and I really did feel very much, uh, I was a little girl, but obviously it was a time. The vulnerability was clear. Very clear, and um, spending the night, in, I to this day remember uh, the uh, this was the cellar of a large apartment house, and I remember my father saying, even then, uh, well, it's good to be there, but there are hot water pipes and gas pipes there, and if the, there were a bomb, we wouldn't survive it. We moved out of London after the Blitz out to a town called Walton-on-Thames, where what people said was that if there were a bomb that hit your house, there was an iron table that existed that if you had it in your house and you were under it, you would survive. And so I remember this iron table. We, I played around the table. I, we ate on the table. I slept under the table. So that is, that was the beginning of my life. And then part of what is really a leitmotif of my life is going from up, down, up, down. So when we, the war was over, my father returned and for a while, he to Czechoslovakia. Uh, to Czechoslovakia. Yeah. We lived in Prague, um, and he was a kind of chief of staff at the foreign ministry for a while, and then he was made uh, Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. So I always say the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. (laughs) Uh, My father didn't want me going to school with the communists, and so I had a governess. And uh, I didn't have very few friends. And um, in Europe, when you get ahead of yourself, you can't go to the next uh, level. So my parents sent me to Switzerland to school, um, and I didn't speak French, and they wouldn't feed me until I spoke French, so I learned French. 
change. But then what happened was the communists took over yeah. in Czechoslovakia, and we left again. And my father, um, came, we, he came to the United States under the auspices of the United Nations um, and then defected and asked for political asylum. And the story he always told um, about our lives just kind of encapsulates everything. He said, when we were in England, uh, people were very kind. They said, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator. Um, You're welcome here. What can we do to help you? And when are you going home? When we came to the United States, people said, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you? And when will you become a citizen? And my father really said that is what made America different from every country. And so... dare say that's what made America great. It did, absolutely. And uh, I do think the diversity of our country really is something that I do think we're exceptional. I really do think we're exceptional. I have never thought that we could ask for exceptions to the rules, uh, but I do think this is an exceptional country for accepting people like me and others, and not only accepting, but it's kind of an incredible story to go from being a refugee to being Secretary of State. So, Yeah. No, my, my father was a, an immigrant from Ukraine, also fled tyranny, but yeah. in a different era. And um, uh, I've always been proud to live in a country that people fled to, that people where people wanted to go uh, because they felt that they could live in freedom and, and find opportunity. Uh, it seems that that's a great strength. So tell me, through uh, comment on what you're seeing now through the prism of your own experience as a young girl well i um what is going on now is i would say is un-american anti-american and very dangerous uh because i think this country has been enriched by people from different countries and different backgrounds but the way that there has become such an anti-immigrant focus on things has i think hurt us very badly uh First of all, it has limited the number of people, obviously, that want to come here. I'm a professor, and I know, um, for instance, that there's real concern about how many foreign students will be able to come in, uh, how our American students can go travel abroad and do research, any number of things that really limit us. But I also think that uh, what is, if this was the the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric and the executive order that came out was supposed to protect us, it has done the opposite. Frankly, it's a great recruiting tool for um, ISIS. Uh, then also, it has, in fact, made it very dangerous for our troops um, in Iraq, for instance, because people are they are afraid to help them, and very clearly the interpreters that um, that we need to be there. Then it has limited our capability to collect intelligence in uh, from uh, the countries that have been quote banned, uh, and so I think it has hurt us in many ways. It also uh, is when you when you say uh, it makes our troops. Uh, unsafe. It also is a pro- provocation for homegrown terrorists here, which is the biggest threat from terrorism we face right now, radicalized citizens or or, or, or permanent residents who, uh, through social media, have become uh, moved to 
to violence. So uh, certainly this wasn't helpful in that regard. On your point on Iraq, um, Iraq being on the list uh, put in jeopardy people who have been cooperative. Absolutely. No, it, I mean, there's so many things wrong with it. I mean, partially <clears throat> it was a bad idea for its substantive reasons. It also was rolled out in a way that showed the complete lack of understanding of the U.S. government by the Trump administration in terms of no coordination, uh, of uh, uh, not understanding how the system works, putting the cabinet members that, quote, knew about it into a very uncomfortable position, Uh, then the um, real denigration of the judicial system, the language that came out about that, uh, and and I think has shown a very bad um, picture in terms of who we are and why we are. Uh, I also have been abroad a lot, uh, and people uh, wonder, what is America these days? I mean, we have been known for being generous and kind. The other part, David, is that what has happened is that in Europe, uh, the large number of refugees have gone into Europe, and the, certainly Angela Merkel in Germany has been the most generous in opening up their borders, and then other countries have taken uh, some of the refugees. And we are telling people, you've got to take more while we are taking less. President Obama was generous in terms of opening up and saying that we needed to take more refugees. Uh, President Trump has cut that in half and then already put this ban in. And I think it's we can't tell other countries what to do if we are not being uh, generous ourselves or actually counter uh, very bad in terms of, of not uh, understanding the importance of this issue. If he were here, of course, he would say that uh, he's just trying to, as you point out, uh, stem uh, the potential of violent anti-American elements coming into the country. Um, but the but the refugee screening that's been done is the most rigorous in the world already. No question. I'm put in by President Obama in terms of, uh, I think there are like 20 steps that are very, very rigorous uh, on this. And takes a couple of years. A long time. And, um, and our people that screen the visas are, are very capable and look at it. But I go back to what I said earlier. In many ways, this is encouraging uh, those that have anti-views um, anti-Islamic, um, anti-American views about what we think about Islam. Uh, it's just a recruiting tool. That's the problem. I've never seen anything done that is quite as counterproductive as this executive order. I'm uh, interested in, in your conversations with people overseas. You must talk to foreign leaders and your counterparts, uh, former leaders uh, and diplomats. Um, what are they saying to you? Well, first of all, I I did create a group of former foreign ministers, and we talk about whatever we want, whenever we want. And the last couple of meetings that we've had have been specifically about refugees. Among our former foreign ministers, there are some that are refugees, George Papandreou in Greece, uh, for instance, and Joschka Fischer in Germany. And so uh, we've been talking about what international things we can do. But most recently, I just came from this Munich security conference, Mm -hmm. and uh, what was so interesting is I've been to them myself many times, and the U.S. has always been the center of the discussion, but mostly about what we can do to be helpful and what our role is in the world. This time, 
people were very confused uh, by the kinds of things that Trump as candidate had said, and even President Trump, in terms of uh, saying that what are, where does our stand on NATO and what is our stand on the European Union. And, and so even though Vice President uh, Pence came and uh, Secretary Mattis was there saying that we were committed to NATO, people would come up to me and say, well, fine words, but what are the actions? What's really going to happen here? And so, and then the other part that truly troubled me, nobody there, uh, well, the two Americans that spoke, but also then President Trump has talked about our values in terms of America's system. And so what has happened is there were um, the foreign minister of um, Russia, Sergei Lavrov, and then Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, the foreign minister of Turkey, and the foreign minister of China said, we are now in a post-Western world. So all of a sudden, the kinds of things that have uh, really shown why America's leadership is important, why people look to this country, President Reagan and Shining City on a Hill, all that all of a sudden has dissipated with the America first and, um, and discrimination against people and um, horrible language uh, vis-a-vis the, the Mexicans, you know, saying you've got bad hombres. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in terms of uh, uh, moving away from what the basic values of the United States are. When we came to the United States, we sailed in on a ship called the SS America. And I did go by the Statue of Liberty. I was 11 years old. So those words are implanted in my head. And I have said there's no uh, fine print at the bottom of that statement that we won't take X, Y, or Z kind of people. It's ridiculous. This is anti-American. And yet uh, this is sort of the the core of the appeal that he made as a candidate, that um, this sort of uh, Battleship America thing that we're going to pull up the drawbridge. And that was the point of his, his inaugural speech, America First. Uh, what are the consequences of that uh, in terms of our, our long-term security and the, and, the, and the security of the world? Well, I think that we know um, it is the responsibility of the President of the United States to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. Uh, our people um, are internationally minded. They travel. They want to do things. Uh, and then many of them actually do have backgrounds in uh, other countries. And we we see ourselves as being part of an international system. Our territory... Uh, We have uh, been blessed by having two friendly neighbors on the north and the south and protected by two oceans. We have been until 9-11. And so I do think it has complicated a little bit in terms of how we deal with our security issues. But our way of life is totally dependent on having partners in other countries. Um, And we are interconnected. And so I think that by saying that uh, we're going to pull up the drawbridge and um, be hostile towards those that are different, I think it is in the medium, maybe in the short term, it's attractive to people who feel they're competing with some foreigner for a job or that our jobs have been uh, outsourced. But in the medium and long term, it hurts us. It is very short-sighted. And we will suffer. Our economy will suffer. Uh, Our um, capability of competing in a number of different ways and of being leaders. I see the United States, and kind of the theme of my life has always been is when the U.S. is absent, 
such as in Munich, for instance, when a deal was made, the British and French made a deal with the Germans and Italians over the heads of the Czechoslovaks, the U.S. wasn't there. And then as a little girl, when the Americans came and we were in London, the Yanks were there. You could feel it. And it was, uh, things were going to be all right. And they were all right. And then when at the end of World War II, the British, uh, we and the Russians made a deal, kind of divide Europe, that was terrible. So I can go on, but every time the U.S. has kind of absented itself or been on the wrong side, terrible things happen. So we have to be leaders. And so that's what troubles me. It strikes me that, um, you know, you lived through this very portentous time. And what emerged from the disaster of World War II was a very sturdy world order in which America was at the center. And uh, the alliance between America and Europe uh, was central uh, to that. That seems to be fraying now. Um, And uh, as you look at Europe, what do you see? Because there is this rising nationalism there. We saw it in Brexit. Uh, you see it with uh, the rise of Le Pen in France. Uh, Angela Merkel, as you point out, has been very generous in accepting refugees, but at some political price. And she's now trailing in polling for the first time in six or seven years uh, there. What, where is this headed? Well, I think it's very dangerous. And let me, I've I've tried to analyze it in a number of different ways. I think that there is, there are two megatrends that have a downside to them. So globalization is obviously the big trend, and it has brought a lot of people out of poverty um, and has been positive in a number of ways. The negative part about it is, though, that it's faceless. And people feel lost in it, and they want to establish what their identity is. And that's fine. I think we all want to know what our linguistic, uh, ethnic, religious identity is. But if my identity hates your identity, it it creates terrible problems. And that's what we're seeing is, and especially in Europe, for instance, um, where there had been, as a result of the financial crisis, uh, economic problems. So who do you blame for that? And it's easy to blame the other for the financial crisis and loss of jobs. The other part that I've tried to get my head around is that after World War One. Uh, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was uh, defeated, uh, the countries in Central and Eastern Europe were created a lot on the basis of national identity. Um, and so then the trend after the fall of the war, the end of the Cold War, there was this desire to be Europeans. I was doing surveys in Europe at the time and in 91, and whether they were Czechs or Hungarians or Poles, they'd say they want to be Europeans. So then what has happened now has been there has been a fallback to that kind of um, nationalism that uh, blames the other. And patriotism is one thing. Nationalism is very dangerous, and we're seeing that. Uh, and when it turns into hypernationalism, and then when it turns into this domestic political scene where you decide you have to blame uh, the foreigners and you don't want the refugees and um, and the whole belief system is based on division rather than unification. And that's what's happening. You have, speaking of division, apparent division within the administration, because um, you must know General Mattis. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to spend time with uh, now Secretary Tillerson. Um, 
uh, General McMaster, who just became National Security Advisor, uh, they they seem to be institutionalists. They seem to recognize the uh, value of international institutions and the importance of alliances like NATO. Um, but uh, Steve Bannon, who is uh, sitting next to the president in the White House, does uh, espouse the views that you describe, uh, uh, the na- nationalist, xenophobic um, uh, kinds of anti-immigrant, anti-trade. Um, who Who is making foreign policy in this administration? Well, that's the question, frankly. I think that President Trump, he may be a great businessman. I have no idea. But I think he knows... He would insist. He would insist. Uh, But I think he knows nothing about foreign policy and national security policy. And uh, what we have seen in terms of his reactions to things would show that he really doesn't get it from um, the national security perspective. And he's never been in the government. I mean, it's not easy to kind of come into the government and sort out how decisions are made. I do teach, and I teach about the fact that foreign policy is trying to get what you need for your national interest and what are the tools and how does the decision-making process work. We're not a new country. We've actually been making decisions for a long time. Uh, And they have, this administration... Um, either has not studied how decisions have been made um, or don't care or are deliberately trying to undermine the process. And my own sense is that I don't think President Trump is trying to undermine the process, but the more that I hear about Steve Bannon, I think he is deliberately trying to undermine the process. Uh, I don't know whether he is, quote, the great intellectual that some people uh, are saying and that he's uh, ideologically motivated and then he's read all these books. I, I just think that he uh, has decided that what is important is to destroy the system. And as somebody who's been in the government, you have and I have, disruption isn't bad. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the bureaucracy yeah. needs a little yeah. kick, but destruction is very dangerous. And especially if the destruction is being done in order to put in some kind of an authoritarian state. Uh, and what has been so, what makes democracy what it is, is the, um, are the intermediary groups between the citizens and the, the government, the administration, um, civil society, as people talk about it, independent groups that can speak, that are, have, represent various parts of the, uh, population and there's supposed to be constant dialogue between the people and uh, the government and um, a way that uh, people are a- politics is actually not a bad word um, it is uh, comes from this uh, discussion that is supposed to be taking place and to try to blow that up and then have some strong man uh, take it over to what end is for me uh, incomprehensible. But I do think that uh, Steve Bannon, unfortunately, is one of the most influential people out there and that Trump is um, taking too much advice from him. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And now... Back to the show. You talk about the appeal of the strongman and uh, at the core of uh, of the politics of a Steve Bannon, or but we also live in a very complex times. I would say revolutionary times in some ways, wrought by technology and globalization has been sort of turbocharged by technology. And so what we saw in the election were in wide swaths of the country, there were people who feel uh, like they've been left behind in this economy, that they haven't, that the deal has been rigged uh, against them. Um, And it seems to me that's not something to be ignored. And you see it in Europe as well. I think Brexit, the Brexit vote was, a reflection of that. So as, as a, as a great public thinker, what do we have to do to, uh, account for changes in the economy that will, in fact, because of automation, leave, uh, more and more people in an unsettled position? Well, I talked about megatrend. There's another one that I've talked about, and, and it is technology, uh, which clearly has connected people in the most remarkable way. And uh, it's always good to talk about the uh, Kenyan woman farmer who doesn't have to walk miles to pay her bills anymore. She can do it over a mobile phone and all over the world. There's no question that technology has been a boon for a better life for many people, but it also has a downside. And uh, you called me a great thinker. I have to admit, I just plagiarized this thought because I got it um, out in Silicon Valley. And I think it summarizes a lot of what's going on. People are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The government listens to them on 20th century technology and are providing 19th century responses so that there is no faith in institutions. And I think that in many ways, many countries, including ours, we kind of missed the boat in in seeing what technology was doing to people um, and um, not doing enough in our educational system to get people prepared for dealing with new kinds of skills for new jobs. Uh, And and people have been left out. I, I was out campaigning. And um, and in many ways, it was very different from uh, 2008, I mean, in terms of some of the things that had happened to people. And, um, and I think there really was a sense that there has been a group of people that have not been able to cope with the current systems. But what is more troubling is the general aspect of no faith in institutions. Mm-hmm. So in our system, it is very important... Um, 
you've seen executive and legislative relations. They're actually the most fascinating part of our government. But just uh, the gridlock that came out of uh, the Republican Congress when President Obama was there and uh, the fact that Mitch McConnell just flat out said that his major goal was to make sure that the president, the president Obama wouldn't have two terms, then created a very bad reputation for Washington, that nothing got done. Um, and so I think that's the problem, is that all of a sudden people don't know where to turn because the institutions are not responding to their needs. And that's what we have to look at. Isn't there kind of a danger, though, that the negative lessons of the last eight years are now going to infect the next uh, period of time? This is a big debate within democratic circles. It, it, should you resist every element yeah. of what Trump does and try and bring him down, um, even if you're smart enough not to say it? Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think that it really is an issue in terms of, I believe in bipartisanship, frankly. Uh, I got along with Jesse Helms. Uh, we were able to do a lot of things together. Uh, and you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about the post-World War II world. A lot of it was based, the institutions that we live with were based on bipartisanship. Uh, Senator Vandenberg. But there is debate in the in the party. And, and I think that uh, we have to be somewhere between, uh, we can't resist everything. Uh, I think, though, we need to remember who we are as Democrats, what has to be done. And at the same time, there are certain things that we can uh, cooperate on, and some where we just have to say, this is not American. And I think that has something to do with uh, the immigration issues, with uh, how to treat workers generally, the health care system. Um, I mean, what bothers me the most in the long run is that the social contract is broken. Uh, what the agreement that is made uh, in a democracy is that the people are willing to give up some of their individual rights in order to be protected by a government that has the power to create an education system or build roads or make sure that uh, people are safe. That That's what the deal is. But the, but the contract has not been fulfilled. And that's the thing that really bothers me. I do think that, and it doesn't sound that way, but I do try to be an optimist. And I think that we are on the verge of a new system internationally and that uh, there has to be a different approach to uh, partnership and America's involvement and um, a reform in the United Nations and some look at what uh, alliance structures really do but remembering that America is the indispensable nation, uh, uh, and there's nothing in that word that says alone. It means that we have to have partners to try to deal with peace and stability. And peace and stability abroad affects the American people. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the part. Um, what's happening now, um, there's a discussion going on about cutting the State Department budget and all aid. Aid that we give to countries is a national security issue. It may, It helps us get countries abroad more stable so that people don't feel that they have to recruit those that are miserable and then turn them against us. So we have a lot of work to do. One of the most, one of the interesting things is it's military leaders who are pushing back on, on this notion yeah. of uh, zeroing out foreign aid or cutting back the state department. And uh, general Mattis himself said 
I think in 2013, that if you cut funding for the State Department, you better give me a lot more money because we're going to have more conflicts. Uh, so that's another place where it's not clear, you know, who's speaking with what voice because he's a, the apparent beneficiary of this uh, new arithmetic and budgeting, um, much of which may not get through Congress in the way it is. But it, it's confusing. It's confusing to foreigners, I, to go back to that. I think they have no idea who's speaking on behalf of the U.S. And certainly in the U.S. you have no idea about it. I have to say it's not easy to have a new government. However, the transition process is something, I mean, I've been transitioned into and done the transitioning. The latter is more fun. But the bottom line is it is a way of turning over the crown jewels. They didn't do any of that. I mean, there was no preparation. I think there was no understanding of the complexity of the government and the fact that when we speak to each other, uh, there's a worldwide audience that hears us and it undermines the position of the United States, which makes us less secure. Uh, do you think uh, the Tillerson is a is a player here? I mean, I, I think we don't know. By the way, you asked if I had met him uh, when he was uh, head of uh, ExxonMobil. I think he is a, a very has been a very smart businessman. Uh, we had uh, it's kind of protocol to give a call to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did that. And then I saw him uh, at the alfalfa dinner. Uh, but I have not had any longer telephone uh, or a meeting with him. Uh, I do think that he is in a difficult position because the State Department, a lot of people were either fired or left. Uh, he does not have his full retinue of people. He doesn't have a deputy mm-hmm. uh, or the undersecretaries or the assistant secretaries. So he's at a disadvantage. But it's essential. The State Department is the senior department in the government. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was Secretary of State, uh, and uh, a lot of the meetings in the past have been chaired by the Secretary of State, uh, plays a major role within the National Security Council system, and I and I think it would be a tragedy if he did not have a full voice very quickly. Yeah, well, to borrow a line from Hamilton, I'm not sure he's in the rooms where it's happening, you know, right now. It, it feels as if he's somewhat uh, detached. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't get back to your story. I, I there's so much to talk about, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to short uh, circuit that uh, discussion. But you have such an interesting. You've had such an interesting life, uh, and part of the reason it was interest. It, it is so interesting is because um, it's not like you plunged right into this public career of yours uh you um uh, you got married you raised uh kids uh and part of it took you through my hometown of chicago talk about that journey and how you made the transition uh into this very very illustrious career later in your life well it never was planned that's for sure i did go to wellesley and um I got married, I waited a really long time, three days after graduation. Um, and um, Married com- into a, a very illustrious Chicago publishing family. family. Um, and what had happened was that I met my 
husband when I was um, uh, in the summer when I was working on the Denver Post, and so was he. And I looked forward to being a journalist. That's really what I thought I would do. So um, we got married, and um, he was in the Army. And I we I went with him to Fort Leonard Wood and got a terrific job at a newspaper in Rolla, Missouri, where I did everything. I, I uh, set type. I uh, interviewed people that had seen UFOs. Mm-hmm. I wrote the social page. Uh, and uh, and I thought when we when he got out that we could in fact uh, we would live in Chicago. He already had a job with the Chicago Sun Times. Uh, his family had actually started the Chicago Tribune, right. Joseph Medill. Yes, I, well, I, I, I remember uh, President, I, I don't remember, but famously President Roosevelt, who took quite a lot of incoming yeah. from uh, Colonel McCormick, the Patterson family, at the New York Daily News, Chicago Tribune called them the McCormick-Patterson yeah. Axis. No, and uh, by the, when... Um, uh, I first met my husband, and uh, uh, he came to the house, and uh, my father found out there was some relationship to the McCormicks. That really kind of... <laughs> uh, but anyway, so what happened, uh, Joe already worked for the Chicago Sun-Times, and we were having dinner with his managing editor, and he looked at me, and he said, so what are you going to do, honey? And I said, I'm going to work on a newspaper. And he said, I don't think so. You can't work on the same paper as your husband because of uh, labor regulations. And even though there were three other papers in Chicago at the time, um, he said, and you wouldn't want to compete with your husband, which is not what I might say today or any of the (laughs) other people. But anyway, so and he said, go find another life. So I did. And I went to work for Encyclopedia Britannica, which was in a building right behind the Chicago Tribune. Yes. Uh, And we lived... um, uh, 2735 North Pine Grove Avenue behind the Elks Temple. Um, and Chicago was great. I think it was a wonderful city. It was in the heyday of the late Mayor Richard J. Daly. Yep. And Second City. That yeah. had all started, all the improv. And we had a great time. And then uh, I love going back to visit Chicago. And uh, But I, I had my kind of experiences much. Joe's grandmother lived on Lakeshore Drive and was a very proper uh, uh, socialite. And uh, I kept trying to adjust and try to figure out who I was. Anyway, what happened was Joe then, uh, his aunt uh, was the publisher of Newsday out on Long Island. And so we moved there and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had twins and... um, what then happened was I had to leave. They were premature, so I left them in the. I had to leave them in the hospital, and I decided to take Russian for. Um, there was a course that was eight hours a day for eight weeks, so I took that, and that made me think that I wanted to go to gra- back to graduate school, and then that's what I did. I I, uh, I won't go through all the moves, but we came to Washington, and then we moved back to New York, and I finally got my PhD from Columbia. I started when my twins were a year old, and they were in junior high, and they finally said, Mom, if you can't finish your paper, we're not going to finish ours. I got very involved in politics here, and uh, when we were in wa- back in Washington, and in 1968, uh, I worked in that campaign. And then, who did you work for? Well, I, it was the Humphrey Muskie mm-hmm. campaign, and I was doing a little policy work. But the main thing that got me into politics was fundraising, uh, and I did a lot of that. Uh, I worked for Ed Muskie in '72, and was with him at the convention. 
I had a little bit of trouble kind of, I actually dislike primaries uh, because they pitch you against people that you then end up being very right. good friends yeah. with. Yes. Um, and uh, so I, I wasn't wild about McGovern. And Mondale was had been appointed a senator um, from Minnesota, mm-hmm. and then he was actually running in 72 for his own term. So I went and worked for him uh, as a fundraiser. And um, so I was in the only happy place in America uh, on, on election night, of, 72. Uh, yeah. And so one thing led to another. Um, and Brzezinski had been my professor speaking at Columbia, speaking of Brzezinski. Yes. National Security Advisor National, for President yeah. Carter. I had, what had happened was that uh, the I had... Muskie had been one of the people that President Carter was looking at for a vice presidential candidate. So I was with him during that whole scene in New York. And then because the person that had been his chief legislative assistant went to work for Mondale uh, uh, on the plane, uh, Muskie named me his uh, chief legislative assistant. So, And I wasn't just the fundraiser and the friend. I was Dr. Albright by then. Loved working on the Hill. and It's amazing that you had a Ph.D. and you were in fundraising. Yep. Well, it taught me politics. That's mm-hmm. the part. And it wasn't until I went to work for, uh, well, for Muskie, I did, I was his chief L.A. I mm-hmm. certainly worked on policy. And then Brzezinski asked me to come to the White House to work on the National Security Council on uh doing legislative relations. And that's why I love the interaction, the intersection between executive legislative relations. I had a great job there. I sat in on every meeting that President Carter had with members of Congress. And Frank Moore, who was in charge of legislative, said, the thing that legitimated me with the White House staff was that I actually had done politics. Mm -hmm. I was not a nerd, a foreign policy nerd that worked on the Security Council. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You said that you were legitimated with the White House staff because you had done politics. I'm curious as to, when I was traveling, and I, you know, I was just a, a duffer compared to you, but with the president on uh, uh, on his travels uh, around the world. One thing that always struck me was that, you know, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local and that um, if you had an understanding of politics and it was helpful in, in international relations, because if you could understand what the politics of the person who was sitting across the yeah. table were and the political demands they had, that really eased the conversation. Did you find your grounding in politics useful in diplomacy? Absolutely. Absolutely. It made a difference to know. And by the way, I do teach now, and I say that every country makes foreign policy decisions based on five factors. The first one is objective, things that are measurable. Where is the country? What is the resource base? The second is how do the people feel? Uh, what is the What are their desires? The third is how their governments are organized. The fourth are the bureaucratic politics that are reflected in their budgets. And the fifth are the role of individuals. And I... The I made that, uh, I mean, it's just a simplified framework, but in 
when you're sitting across the table and negotiating, you've got to do the five factors for the others. And so understand their politics makes all the difference. And because we are a democracy, we need the support of the American people on uh, on support for spending money or, right. or all of it. And so when I was secretary... I made a point of traveling around the United States. We had a website, Travels with the Secretary. And I think that having an understanding of domestic policy makes all the difference. Domestic politics, yeah. Very much so. So, um, obviously, Carter lost and lost badly. And 1980 was kind of a a major dividing line in the history of American politics. A lot of the congressional leaders who you dealt with lost in 19 Frank Church and others who were internationalists then Reagan came to office how, how would you evaluate the Reagan years from the standpoint of foreign policy um well I'll, I'll try to be fair I think that um he did kind of raised the image of the United States again. Very different policy, though, from President Carter, who did believe in human rights and worked very, very hard on the Middle East peace process, actually accomplished something at his Camp David. um, But I think that, and I keep trying to sort this out in my own head, which is that Reagan came out very strongly against, I mean, the evil empire and various things vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Um, And uh, he also wanted to have democracy explained better vis-a-vis communism. He started something called the National Endowment for Democracy because he said we didn't explain ourselves very well. But he did contribute more to the division of the world between the Soviet Union and the United States, and our aid policies reflected that. And But he was a large character on the scene, and even though at the time I thought when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, take down that wall, that it was kind of weird. Uh, but I think that he did posit Though the, the wall ultimately came down. did come down. And How much credit does he deserve I for think that? he does deserve credit. And I think that some of the things that he did in terms of uh, crystallizing the, the differences between the systems uh, was very useful. I'd, at the time, I'd, not just over that, but at the time we kind of looked at him and tried to figure out what he, how much he knew and what he was doing. But he, he was a grand character um, in many different ways. However, coming in after him uh, was also one of those, I mean, the, the transfer from him and then President, uh, first President because Bush. Because you came in with the Clinton administration right. in 92. And one of the things, frankly, that happened, because they're really uh, the trend of things I find fascinating to think about, because the image had not been right and also there had not been enough attention paid to domestic policy in many ways. The problem for those of us that were in national security in the Clinton, at the beginning of the Clinton term, was how to persuade the American people that foreign policy was important. Mm -hmm. So that's when the whole business about the indispensable nation came up. Because President Clinton said it first, but I just said it so often it became identified with me. It was the point of getting the American people to understand that we needed to be engaged internationally, that we didn't have to do it alone, but America's absence from foreign policy uh, 
made it less made it more difficult for our economy and for our security but there is this thing always that goes back and forth in terms of how much foreign policy and how much domestic policy and the thing that i like to talk about is the connection between the two thinking back to reagan and the evil empire how do you evaluate the president trump's uh, relationship with vladimir putin and some of the things that he has said i find it very hard to figure out what really is going on but what did happen in some of the or is happening in some of the statements i think that what vladimir putin wants uh, is to make sure that the european union uh, falls apart uh, that there is a zone of influence for russia in eastern europe uh, and also that uh, they, the Russians have more of an influence in the Middle East and are basically a major power. Uh, I think that whether Trump knows it or not, his uh, approach to Europe is similar to to Putin's. And, um, and I think there is this term that the Russians or the communists have called useful mm-hmm. idiot. I think in many ways Trump has played that in terms of being on the same page uh, about Europe. I think that um, I think some of it is uh, that um, Putin flatters him. Um, I think that Trump identifies in some ways with the nationalist kind of identity issue that Putin has done in Russia, uh, and he wants to emulate that. But I do find it weird, I have to say. Um, just returning to your tenure, uh, first as UN ambassador and then as Secretary of State, you've spoken uh, in the past about Rwanda and uh, the failure to act uh, in Rwanda. Uh, do you think that the um, Do you think that the U.S. should have been more aggressive in Syria? Uh, and could some of these refugee problems that have really affected Europe in a profound way and destabilized Europe could that have been avoided? Well. Um it's a complicated uh, question, but I think partially um, on how much information does the president uh, have in making decisions like that. So part of the thing of being at the U.N. Uh, when I was there, we were looking generally at how peacekeeping was working, what would be America's contribution, how did you know what was going on there. I think one of the things that I have learned is that one has to, in assessing decisions, know what information was available at the time and not uh, in retrospect. So there have been a lot of criticisms of Rwanda, and um, President Clinton and I have both apologized for it, but I can just flat out tell you that we didn't have the information. Uh, and, um, and while it came out later and showed how awful it was, uh, people need to know what information there was. I happen to wish that we had done more on Syria, but I also do think that probably not all the information was there in terms of who the rebel groups really were. Uh, and so I have sympathy for the fact of how hard it is to make a decision on the basis of what you have. And let me just say, when I teach, there I have Madeline's verities, and one of them is the first information that comes in is always wrong. Um, and I think that what is important in a decision-making process is for the president to be able to have 
the um, the real capability of mind and also interest to be able to listen to diverse opinions and understand uh, how important the information is and how hard the decisions are. And making snap decisions is the worst thing you can do. Uh, but I do think my own sense on Syria, I do wish we'd done more, but I also can understand that there wasn't enough information at the time. You, uh, you because of, uh, of this life that you've led, you're a great inspiration, uh, to women. And you, uh, also were a, um, a, a tireless campaigner in this last election for your friend, uh, Secretary Clinton, um, uh, there was a there was an episode up in New Hampshire during the primary campaign in which you addressed a group of of women and you said something that everyone tells me that you've said a thousand times that really is informed i think by your own right. experience talk, talk about that well it's interesting because when we were talking about my story which took forever the bottom line is that women actually were not helpful that's what surprised me so i was criticized by other women that i was going to school instead of taking care of my children you know why are you in the library instead of in the carpool line or my hollandaise sauce is so much better than yours or just kind of very judgmental and uh and i really from my own experience said that that i was not helped by some women and that there was a special place in hell for women who don't help each other which I really believe. And uh, when I went to teach at Georgetown in the 80s, it was part of a program to help train women for um, life in, in international relations, and that I thought that it was always better to have more than one woman in the room during decision-making and that we couldn't afford to have queen bees around who said, if there's only one job, I'm going to have it. So I have said it over and over again, and it's always been received very, very well. And I'll tell you what really happened in New Hampshire. We were, um, there was a very big crowd there, not just women. Um, and I was standing with Hillary, and um, I started out the line, and there was applause immediately, and they therefore didn't hear what I actually finished with, which was, and therefore, because of everything you've done for women, you're going to the other place. And that was not, but it, I have to say, this was something that was deliberately taken out of context. Yeah, it was, it, it became a, a story. And um, it was interesting to me because younger women who haven't had your experience because of what women like you have done, I mean, younger women have a whole different experience. Now, it's not that remarkable in their view for to for women to advance um and uh, so there was this sense of not uh, they you know there was a don't lecture us on no and uh, i do think that there is a generational issue and i have definitely um I have spent more, I, I teach, so I spend a lot of time with young women. And we've talked about this. And one of the things that's out there that uh, I don't think we can take anything for granted and that things can be pushed back. And just look at President Trump's cabinet. Yeah. You know, there are not a lot of women there. And I think that there are real questions now about what uh, what is going to happen on women's issues generally. Uh, and therefore, I don't think we can take anything for granted. And women do need to help each other. What, what in your estimation, happened in 2016? Why, why did 
Hillary Clinton lose a race that everybody assumed until 8.30 on Tuesday night, November 8th, that she was going to win? I think it's something that we talked about earlier, which is kind of, uh, for whatever reason, um, we missed the story about those that were left out. I I really do think. Um, I was listening to something um, actually this morning about you know, why people didn't go to Michigan and Wisconsin. And and I think um, it, it's very hard to explain, uh, but I think that it is a missed story. There's another part that really did surprise me about women that didn't vote for her. Um, and I think that that's something worth exploring, what the problem was. Then there are people who didn't vote, period, because they thought it was over. I think that the polling, I mean, any number of different things. And the main thing that I've, I mean, I've obviously been talking to people who are all trying to figure it out. It has to be done in a way where we're not blaming each other. We need to figure out uh, how not to have this happen. Um, but I have to tell you, that um, a lot of the the methods that you all brought in with President Obama, which were really remarkable, having been on uh, the other side at the time, is that one can't look at models that worked in a previous yeah. election. We have to keep trying to figure out what the start. By the way, uh, I've told this, and you will appreciate this, is when um, during the 2008 election, and I was at a, a, a caucus Uh, in Iowa, and I said that what happened was cookies versus calculators, because the Hillary people were uh, a lot of middle-aged women after the first round um, that, in fact, uh, left those people that had been for Biden and Richardson, et cetera, kind of loose and trying to get them to come and be on the Clinton side. What happened was there were a lot of women that said, come with us, we've baked a lot of cookies. And then there were the Obama people who had calculators, and they figured out. So that was the most modern, wonderful method. The question is whether we all missed uh, the because it was a combination of Obama and Clinton working together in 16, somehow there were um, holes in some of the places that we should have gone to. Yeah. The polling stuff didn't work, a number of things. But I think that we have to sort out so that this doesn't happen again. I think that you can be over-reliant on the technology yeah. and... Uh their 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 instincts that one has to follow and the technology itself is not fail safe and it needs to be checked and scrutinized and uh, but you're quite right it just advances all along i will say this my memory of the 2008 campaign is yes we had the calculators but i ate way too many cookies as well so uh, i don't want to suggest <laughs> that we, we didn't part, have cookies and i love to talk about this frankly because i am chairman of the board of the national democratic institute and i talk a lot about the importance of coalition building. And for me, a wonderful lesson out of 2008 was how we all came together. You and I got to know each other. Yes. Uh, And we were trying to figure out how to work together. And then when President Obama asked uh, Hillary Clinton to be a secretary of state, it is a fantastic example of what happens when you get people together that had disagreed. And what an incredible... Uh, amount of work they did together, uh, and it, that is the story of America. What one uh, 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 we, we need to go, but I want to ask you where you think we're headed, not in terms of the administration, but in terms of the country itself, because one of the sort of unintended 
or or unanticipated byproducts of the election is there's an awful lot of energy out there right now. You talk about our uh, our uh, our civil uh, life, our civic institutions, and so on. Uh, people seem more engaged now, frankly, than they did before November eighth. Uh, that has to that has to have implications. I think it does. I think the question is um, how to organize it uh, that people are frustrated. And I think that actually the town hall meetings are fascinating. I'm hoping that uh, more people, young people, that those people that were uh, cynical about what was going on in this last election or disinterested, that they are the ones that are motivated. And I just spent the weekend at Wellesley with a lot of young women who want to know what to do uh, and want to get organized. And so we were talking about college newspapers that want to. The worst thing that's going on is this whole business about what is true. Uh, and the fake news and all that. And I think when we were talking about journalism, young journalists now, we need to focus on how we get real news, how people, there's not censorship, there's not, um, we can have alternative opinions, we can't have alternative facts. And I think that it's going to be very important to organize and to really And it goes back to, we can't say this is normal. This is not normal, what is going on now for this country. And so there's a combination of trying to find the areas where we can cooperate and then actually getting people to run for office, doing things at the local level, and making sure that the Democratic Party has a 50-state campaign. You, uh, if if that editor at the Denver Post had been more... uh broad-minded chicago oh at the chicago, chicago sun times chicago sun. No. <laughs> i didn't want to impugn my own city uh you could you you might be leading uh, the charge on what news the news media should be doing now instead of talking about international diplomacy but well i think it it turned out okay it turned uh, out great but i do think that the combination you know i have been fascinated by the role of the media and information in political change i wrote my dissertation on the Czechoslovak press in 1968, the Prague Spring, Mm -hmm. and then the role of the press in Poland during the Solidarity Revolution. So I think I actually might put my interests together uh, and and really, I want to work on the fact-based thing. And to go back to Munich, which was interesting and maybe rounded out this way, in terms of what was really going on, I sat at dinner next to the Swedish defense minister, who was very worried about what the Russians were doing and buzzing their airplanes and flying without transponders, and was the U.S. really going to worry about what was going to happen in Europe? And then the next day, I was at an event with Carl Bildt, the former Swedish prime minister, and he came in for this event we were doing together, and he said, I'm so sorry I'm late. I'm exhausted from having spent the night (laughs) looking for the Swedish massacre and trying to be helpful, and he went on and on. And... Uh, so we talked about the the idea that all this was based on something that was made up and that Trump saw on Fox News. And it was a perfect place for me to say the following thing. We were in Munich, and as a Czechoslovak, Munich is a real problem. It was not fact-based. And I think, therefore, what we need to figure out is how to make sure that decisions are made 
based on facts that our public is fully informed and that the technology is used to inform people and not delude them. And you know what the answer is? Podcasts. I think that's Well, I think that, you know, especially those (laughs) done by by somebody (laughs) who knows what he's talking about. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for all of the support you've given the Institute of Politics. You you live your values, and part of it is being inspiring to young people. Well, I love doing that, and I love coming to Chicago. Thanks. We'll come soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.